All right, ladies and gentlemen, comrades and friends, uh, as the uh, late Christopher Hitchens liked to start uh, speaking engagements, even when he was speaking to like a Southern Baptist audience, uh, he'd always include the, uh, the comrades and friends. Uh, let's get started. So probably going to take just a couple minutes at the opening to uh, talk through the article a little bit. And then uh, if anybody's in the queue, I will go to questions. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can at least start out talking about the article, though if anybody has any, you know, anything off topic of their mind, we could also do that a bit. So uh, the article in Jackman just came out a couple hours ago. It's called John Fetterman is the kind of political communicator that the left needs. And... You know, this this is a article I've been kind of thinking over and mulling over for a little while. Um, Bhaskar, the uh, main editor at uh, Jacobin, had asked me if I wanted to write up something like this a while ago, actually, because uh, uh, I'd been tweeting about, you know, some of the thoughts that kind of went into the article I've been posting about uh, when Fetterman first won his uh, his primary. Um and then as he's been kind of back in the news, the, uh, you know, I was thinking about the idea again more. Anybody who read the article that I did like a couple weeks ago, I think, for the Daily Beast. Um, so it was like the two two articles ago, you know, two or three articles ago in the Daily Beast. will recognize that a lot of what I'm saying here, I'd said without talking about Fetterman, uh, but I'd said in a different way in, uh, in that article. Um, originally it was called, like, was it Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist Successors, or Failing His Leftist Legacy, which is, like, okay. The, sometimes the Daily Beast, like other publications, after an article is, is already up, they might change the title a couple times. I'm not even sure which editor is doing that, but presumably it's responsive to web traffic or something. And right now it's called, like, Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist Successors, or more woke than progressive, and I'm not really sure what that means. It's certainly not a title that I would have picked, but, you know, the point of that article was to, um, you know, be somewhat critical of a lot of elected Bernie-crats, not because of the substance of their policy views. Uh, there are legitimate criticisms, I think, of the substance of some of those people's policy views. Hell, there, I think there are legitimate criticisms of some of Bernie Sanders' policy views, and I've made them. Uh, if you look at the article I wrote in uh, Current Affairs a little while ago that's linked to this new piece of Jacobin, there's a little hyperlink to it, I think maybe a couple times, but certainly at least once, I wrote something for Jacobin called, uh, sorry, for Current Affairs called uh, Congressional Progressives Need to Do Better on Foreign Policy, but that doesn't mean that Republicans are doves, which was right after the uh, the big $40 billion uh, funding bill that uh, for, uh, for you know the war in Ukraine, which brought the sort of grand total at that point up to $54 billion, which is an awful lot of money going to the military-industrial complex that could be going to healthcare and education. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of what I'd really like, ideally, the Biden administration to be doing in, in Ukraine, which is, um, you know, participating in peace negotiations, which, you know, I mean, some people think that would be like, oh, since, it, you know, that would be too high-handed meddling in, in uh, Ukrainian affairs, for the U.S. to directly involve itself in peace negotiations, which I think is a pretty astonishingly, uh, let's say, novel doctrine, right, in American foreign policy, considering how many conflicts 
the U.S. has been directly involved in negotiations and encouraging both parties to come to the negotiating table and all that stuff to solve, uh, you know, was the Good Friday Agreement, you know, high-handed, uh, you know, meddling in, in, you know, in Irish affairs, you know, uh, about the, you know, the peace accords in Bosnia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever. Um, I think the idea that funneling tens of billions of dollars in uh, money and guns into a conflict zone to try to make sure that your preferred side wins uh, is at least as meddling as, uh, as, as peace negotiations. And, um, and certainly, you know, like, certainly even aside from that, um, you know, Zelensky has actually made comments in the past about wanting Western powers to be, you know, to sit down and directly talk to Russia to help, you know, bring this horrible war in his country to a close. So I think that critique is just kind of silly. So in any case, uh, the point is that in that article, even though it's the second half of the title would indicate, um, I think that alleged uh, Republican doves are actually not very dovish, that people like Josh Howley, for example, who, you know, like Glenn Greenwald, for example, who you know, I agree with on some things, really disagree with on others, but, you know, I, one of the things I really disagree with him about is um, him saying, well, the real anti-war voices are in the GOP now, and I argue in that article that's nonsense if you look at Howley's record of extreme anti-China hawkery, for example, um, and his commentary on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but where I, you know, I do agree with Glenn, and, you know, what I do say in the article is that I think that uh, the squad and also Bernie himself uh, voted for, you know, voted for the Ukraine funded bill was, you know, was bad. They shouldn't have done that. Right. The left should criticize them for it. Even with real political allies, we need to be willing to call balls and strikes. Uh, so that would be one example of a place where I'm critical of some of the policy substance of both Bernie and uh, and the uh, Democratic Socialists in the House. And another would be, you know tech censorship but overall right um i do think these are exceptions to the rule overall i think that on most policy issues um aoc ohan omar rashida talib etc etc and birdie are all on the right page right that they they have most of the views that i would want them to have on policy issues as far as like where american policy you know the the awful hellscape that is American politics go right now relative to that, I think they're all pretty good. Uh, you know, they all support Medicare for all. They all do, in fact, what, you know, even if it's, I think it's inconsistent with the Ukraine vote, you know, they have all talked about reducing the military budget, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, like, policy isn't really my main objection. You know, my main objection that I talk about in that Daily Beast article from a couple of weeks ago um, uh, you know, the one whose title has gone through a couple of permutations, like I said earlier, but it always starts with Bernie's, Bernie's or Bernie Sanders' Democratic Socialist successors. That article, um, you know, my objection is really, again, it's not about policy. It's about the style of political communication that so many of these elected leftists have. Uh, and whether that's really what we need if we're going to win over a majority of the American population to our side and actually like build the kind of real line American politics in the fundamental ways that we'd have to in order to, you know, to build that coalition of a big majority that we would need to actually have a prayer of enacted things like Medicare for all and, 
you know, um, and, and really, uh, and really cut it into the Pentagon budget and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, uh, never mind, you know, a socialist transformation of American society in the long term. But, you know, even in terms of those relatively modest social democratic policy goals, if we're going to achieve them, we'd really need to fundamentally realign American politics. And I just don't think the approach of uh, people like AOC is is really the right way to do that. Um, and so, you know, even when I wrote that article for the Daily Beast, I'd already had this idea for an article about Fetterman, and I didn't really mention him in that piece because I knew I was going to write something about him specifically at some point. Um, so in... Um, so that's what came out today, right? And uh, I'm trying to strike a certain balance in that article between a couple of different goals. So one thing is I'm not trying to be like an uncritical hype man for Fetterman because even though, you know, I would vote for John Fetterman with a song in my heart <laughs> if I were... A Pennsylvania voter, and I would strongly encourage anyone else to, and it's not impossible to give him some money at some point. Uh, I absolutely want him to win, but I don't think that should be the role of left media to, to sort of uncritically hype up any politicians who are you know roughly aligned with us or who we want to win, right? I don't, I don't think that's ultimately the most useful role for left media. I want to, like I said, I want to be able to call balls and strikes even with real political allies, and I'm trying to be honest in the article about some of, I think, his real flaws and limitations on certain policy issues. Um, but nevertheless, I do want to communicate something in the article about why I actually find the Fetterman campaign pretty exciting and what I, the ways in which I hope it might influence other, you know, roughly Bernie-ish um, candidates in other places around the country, especially if he wins, you know, if we get a, you know, a, a second um, senator who's in a somewhat birdie-ish mold. I mean, I, I do say somewhat because there are going to be some caveats as the article goes on, but, you know, a somewhat birdie-ish mode, I think, is fair. Okay. Um, so, first thing I say at the beginning of the article is that uh, Fetterman has actually been kind of kicking ass in polls, which, which is great. You know, this is not what people were expecting when the race started. Uh, Dr. Oz, right, Mehmet Oz, the, uh, the Republican nominee, is obviously uh, a celebrity, you know, TV, uh, TV personality um, and, and somebody who has a fair amount of hype. And, um, and the on paper, it looks like he has a lot going for him. And look, even beyond that, um, you know, I mean, forget Dr. Oz for a second, you know, just thinking about... Uh, Pennsylvania and the United States in general in the uh, year of our Lord 2022, um, this should be Dr. Oz's race to lose on the face of it, right? Like, all indications have been that Democrats are, you know, heading, are driving straight at a wall in terms of their electoral prospects this November nationally. I shouldn't say all indications. Some of the polling data is more complicated than that. But, you know, that's a... That is a very legitimate worry that a lot of people have had, right? You know, like, this is not just me talking. This is, like, people left, right, and center have pretty much been expecting that the Democrats are going to get stomped really hard this fall. Uh, that the 
party that's you know that's in power that won the presidential you know that just took the presidency two years ago um in granted it's a very small data set but still you know even when you put them all together it's a very small data set but still the last bunch of cases uh with one exception um you know the party that takes the presidency generally um has some real losses in the um the midterm elections you know two years later uh the one exception is 2002 um Although it's a weird case because Bush didn't really win, but whatever. Uh, the uh, you know, but he was installed by the Supreme Court, and he actually had a big pickup um, in um, in the uh, the you know. So after he was installed in two thousand, he had a big pickup in the two thousand and two elections because. Um, but that was very unusual circumstances. But the nine eleven terrorist attacks and his response to that and the country's response to that meant that like two thousand and two was a almost unfathomably terrible time. It would be really hard to communicate to anybody who uh who doesn't remember it how bad that was because that was like still very much in the sort of rally around the flag after effect of nine eleven and you know, enough of the country was willing to uncritically, re- I mean, like, right after 9-11, Bush had, like, a 90% approval rating, and, you know, was certainly way down from that, you know, by 2002, but he was still a very popular president, you know, he was, because he was the war president, the war on terror president, um, you know, and, and it was a very uh, unpleasant time uh, for, uh, you know, for for uh, Chomsky readers like myself, you know, who, uh, who, who thought that Bush was a war criminal and the invasion of Afghanistan, um, you know, was, was an imperial adventure that, you know, was, was, was doomed to, uh, to have horrible results. And, uh, the Patriot Act, uh, was a huge assault on civil liberties and the upcoming invasion of Iraq was, was, a, was, um, absolutely criminal and et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff that people like me thought in 2002, you know, that, that made us pretty lonely relative to America in 2002. So it makes sense that Bush broke the bowl. But generally speaking, the, the party in power, the party that's won the presidential election, has midterm losses uh, two years later, seems to be the trend. And um, and for, you know, and for Biden and the Democrats to break that trend this time, they would really have to have, you know, they would really have to do something pretty astounding. Um, they would really have to deliver the goods in spades, right? You know, to uh, to to break that trend, and of course they have done nothing of the kind, right? Um, early on, right? This is what uh, Crystal pointed out when she was on Real Time. Um, you know, early on at the beginning of the Biden administration, he had good approval ratings when he was actually, you know, he had like, yeah, he was doing well in public opinion polls when he was actually doing some stuff for the public. Uh, you know, the $1,400 checks, uh, the, you know, not 2000 like they promised, which is already a bad sign, right? That they were already trying to explain to people that, well, if you think about it, really 1400 might as well be 2000 because you already got that 600. Uh, but, uh, but you know, whatever they were sending people, uh, they were sending people checks. Uh, they were doing the child tax credit, which was huge, uh, actually temporarily, uh, eliminated a huge chunk of child poverty, which shows how easy it would have been to do that at any time. In fact, how easy it would be to, uh, to, to do something about most of the rest of child poverty too, while they're at it. Um, but you know, they and but they were doing these things, which actually made people's lives better in a concrete way. And they were proposing, they were talking about all kinds of things that, 
you know, I mean, it wasn't everything we, we'd want, even in a sort of short-term social democratic way. It wasn't the Bernie program or anything. But they were talking about doing some big, ambitious things that really would have improved people's lives a lot, legislatively. Um, the, you know, build back better with everything that was in there, universal pre-K, Medicare expansion, all that stuff, right? Would have been great. Um, but uh, none of that stuff happened. Uh, partially for reasons outside of their control, Joe Manchin, etc. Uh, we could argue about whether Biden could have, you know, pulled an LBJ and, and brought him into line, but uh, on the face of it, outside of his control, some of them for reasons that were sort of outside of his control, but not really, uh, like the, um, you know, the, the parliamentarian said no on the minimum wage increase, which, you know, you're talking about a low-level staffer who you hired and you can fire at any time, right? Democratic leadership could literally just fire this person or they could just ignore the, her rulings, right? The parliamentarian uh, doesn't, you know, issues non-binding opinions, right? They could just say, nope, we disagree with the opinion and move on, right? Kamala Harris could have done that as the head of the Senate. Um, so, yeah, sometimes for reasons that maybe really were out of the control, sometimes for reasons that, you know, they could claim we're out of their control, but aren't really. Sometimes for reasons that are a hundred percent within their control, nobody could really deny they're within their control. Like Biden breaking his promise to uh, reschedule cannabis and uh, pardon all of the federal prisoners who are in there for nonviolent marijuana offenses um, and expunge everybody's criminal record. That's something he repeatedly promised to do in so many words on the campaign trail. He promised to do that in an ad a week before the election. Um, that was actually uh, the uh, the last article I had in the Daily Beast was about this. Um, and, you know, it's insanely popular. Most Republicans support it. They, the number among Democrats is through the roof. Uh, but Biden hasn't done that, even though he you'd think he would be desperate to find things that are popular that he could do unilaterally, especially if you promise to do them, you know, so he could put some uh, wins on the board. Uh, but whatever, uh, he's not doing it. So given all of this background, um, you know, Republicans are most likely going to have a very, very good fall, right? Like they are, they're most likely going to kick ass in uh, the midterms. And in Pennsylvania specifically, Biden's approval rating is awful. Um, and also remember two years ago, it was way easier to vote than it will be now. Uh, in fact, it was easier to vote in the 2020 election than it's really ever been in this country, right? Because of all the COVID stuff that, you know, to make it easier to have mail and do voting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you put all that together, right? I mean, like the picture's looking pretty grim for Democrats and uh, there were, you know, Republican nominee is, is, is this, you know, person with this celebrity profile, Dr. Oz. And yet uh, Fetterman is winning at all the polls so far. Now, granted, it's very early. It's probably too close to call. You know, it's probably, sorry, not too close to call, but it's too early to call, right? It's definitely too early to call. And so who knows, right? You know, Dr. Oz could totally change the narrative and pull it out, you know, by November. It's it's way too soon to, you know, to count those particular chickens. Um, but so far it looks pretty good because... Um, Oz has been running a bizarre, incompetent campaign, and uh, and Fetterman has been doing all the right things, and it's been paid off, and he's winning. Uh, so, you know, like, and I should say, too, 
he's winning despite the fact that Fetterman had a stroke, right? And, um, you know, and, and was not entirely forthcoming about it and all that, right? Like, nevertheless, he's still, he's still been winning so far uh, in some of those polls by a lot. Uh, and, you know, I think that starts to make more sense when you look at, you know, the sort of strategy that Fetterman has had and the strategy that Oz has had. So Fetterman's main line of attack against Oz has been um, portrayed him in a very funny way, kind of bullied him even, which has been wonderful to see, as this wealthy, out-of-touch, um, you know, celebrity dilettante uh, who is trying to run for office in Pennsylvania from his mansion in New Jersey, which, you know, I believe in the past he's claimed as his primary residence. Uh, so... There's a wonderful viral Fetterman ad uh, where uh, he has, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of doing this Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous parody where he starts out with this actual clip of Dr. Oz showing People Magazine his mansion in New Jersey and talking about how it was originally owned by King George III, and it lists off all of the mansions that he owns around the country and the world, it says number nine, which was the one he bought last, was the one that's finally in Pennsylvania, um, Fetterman has, um, you know, like done this, uh, what do you call it? The plane with the message behind it that says, welcome to New, welcome to Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz. He's had Snooky from the, uh, the Jersey shore do a video about how, you know, Jersey still wants to claim, uh, to claim Dr. Oz. Uh, so a lot of this has been the sort of like, look, you don't come from here stuff, but, uh, but like the flip side of all of it has been that it's been relentlessly emphasizing how wealthy, um, Oz is as a negative, right? It says, look, this, this, this rich guy isn't in touch with your problems, right? He doesn't know what it's like to be struggling with gas prices, etc. Uh, which means that, you know, like what should on paper be Dr. Oz's issue. Cause you know, Democrats are sort of in power. So should be able to say, Hey, there's all this inflation going on under their watch actually becomes uh, Fetterman's issue. Um, and Dr. Oz's main line of attack is like, which he does, does constantly. He did it again on Twitter today. He's been doing it like every day has been to relentlessly emphasize the fact that Fetterman, um, endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016 during Fetterman's first Senate run when he didn't win the Democratic nomination. At that time, Fetterman was the only candidate, right? In 2016, that year, he was the only candidate for statewide office in Pennsylvania uh, who endorsed Bernie. Um, and he had... Uh, uh, and so, basically... What Dr. Oz has been saying all day, every day is, look, this guy is a, is a Bernie guy. He's a Bernie Sanders socialist. You know, he's going to be hanging out with Bernie in the Senate. You know, we don't need another Bernie in the Senate. He's even said, like, oh, he's, he's to the left of Biden. He's not like Biden. He's more like Bernie, which is a fascinating strategy at a time when, uh, at a time when uh, Bernie Sanders actually has much higher approval ratings than Joe Biden. Right? It's like, oh, he's not like the unpopular guy. He's much more like the, at least comparatively, much more popular guy. Um, so again, it's possible that, you know, Dr. Oz might pull his head out of his ass and like find a better strategy between now and November, but right now it looks pretty good. And I think that makes sense. You know, I go into the article, if you look at Fetterman's campaign website and kind of look at his strategy as a, as a political communicator, you know, which is the, 
essential point that I was writing the article to make, right? You know, that's been on my mind for the last few weeks. Because I, the stuff I was talking about in that Daily Beast article about AOC and everybody, where I used the examples about her, you know, delivering these weird lectures on Instagram about the importance of gender-inclusive language and, you know, anybody, who's, anybody who doesn't like, you know, Latinx is, is just whining, you know, you can't put that little X in your campaign literature, you baby, whatever. Um, and the way that she sort of accused Republican voters in general of, of like, all being bigots, which, you know, some truth to, but I think is incredibly politically unhelpful. <laughs> you know, when I say there's some truth to, I mean, like, look, is there a higher percentage of worse racial attitudes among Republican voters? Of course there is, right? You know, that's, you know, Southern strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But um, if you're blaming the voters instead of thinking about how you can appeal to the voters, right, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> that's, you know, you should be talking about how, you know, all these Republicans who claim to be populists are lying, right? That they, they're really serving the interests of the 1%, you know? Um, so... Uh, you know, what I, you know, so what I was criticizing AOC and the, some of the other Bernie Kratz for the Daily Beast piece and what I'm praising Fetterman for here is that, like, seems like AOC and some of the others have this strategy. Again, I'm talking here not about policy because we can all agree, you know, I think on the left at least, that uh, socially progressive policies are important, right, that we need anti-discrimination laws, etc., but about political communication, that, you know, as a political communicator, uh, the strategy of AOC and, and co seems to uh, seems to be to combine Bernie Sanders' social democratic economic ideas with relentless appeals to Team Blue in the culture war, which I think is just a terrible strategy because it you know because you know you just can't break out of the um, of like that segment of the population and you know in the way that you need to to have the kind of national political realignment we need to actually make any of the Bernie policies a reality. And Bernie himself, at his best, I think, had a very different kind of political formula, right? Like, look, if you ask Bernie about um, abortion rights, you ask him about, um, you know, equal rights for trans people, you ask him anything like that, right? He will give a succinct but unambiguous answer that reflects the same animated moral commitment to egalitarianism that informs all of economic policies, right? So I'm not going to try to do a Bernie accent. I can't do a good Bernie, but, you know, he'll say, look, yeah, I support a woman's right to choose. Or, you know, I I don't think we should discriminate against anybody. I, I would oppose such and such law, right? And then two seconds later, he'll pivot back to talking about the bread and butter economic issues where the left's message is the most popular. And that seems like exactly the right approach to me, right? Like, Fight them on the ground that they don't want to fight on. Don't dodge the issue, right? Say what you think about the social policy issues with no ambiguity and no hesitation, right? But keep the channel turned to, you know, the channel that the right doesn't want it on, right? Because it's where, the, you know, the left's ideas are most popular. That seems like obviously the right strategy. Um, you know, I think about, like, Bernie in that booth when he was uh, being interviewed by Marie Dowd when he's like literally waving around the list of topics that he's willing to talk about, he's like, look, I'm, you're not going to distract me, right? You know, here's what I want to talk about, that kind of incredible mess of discipline. And that sort of, you know, that kind of winning political formula that Bernie at his best was able to do that made him seem, despite his robustly socially progressive policy positions, 
that made Bernie at his best seem to rise above the sort of day-to-day partisan noise of the you know red versus blue culture war and seem to embody a different kind of politics. You know, I think Fetterman has some of that. I think that's really exciting. Now, uh, there are some flaws. We can talk about those in a minute. We're almost done here, by the way. If anybody wants to get in the queue and ask a question or make an objection or tell me what's on their mind. But, um, you know, but I think that, like, in terms of what's good about Fetterman, you know, I, I highlighted in the article a couple of the videos uh, that you'll find in the issue section as campaign website. The very first one, top left of the campaign website, is called The Union Way of Life. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It focuses on Fetterman, you know, the, they're all videos, right? You know, the, uh, the first one, you know, focuses on Fetterman's support for two strikes, one a teacher strike in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, the other one is the uh, Kellogg strike last year. So, you know, you see him speaking to striking workers, talking at rallies, talking to reporters about the strikes, and he's just using very simple, straightforward um, language to talk about how the workers are getting a raw deal and they need to, the strike is important, and, you know, so they can get a fair contract. And similarly, on a, the flip side of it, you know, there's another video further down the page about gay and trans rights. He uses the way overly long acronym. That'd be my only criticism of the video. The LGBTQIA plus, I think is, I think I got that right. Uh, but otherwise, right. He's using the same kind of very simple, very compelling language. Um, you know, he's not like snapping back at the problematic, right. You know, he's, uh, he's taking unambiguous progressive policy positions. He's talking about how he was the first state official in Pennsylvania to solemnize same sex weddings, at a time when the then governor was threatening to uh, to take legal action against him for doing it, uh, he she shows a picture of him at a rally with you know I mean big John Fetterman, looking the way that he looks with this giant like rainbow flag on him, right? So there's no there's no ambiguity whatsoever about his position, but he doesn't use any academic language. He doesn't use any language that sounds like he was cooked up in an HR department. He's just kind of saying, look, um, you know, he's using. You know, he's appealing to universalist principles uh, that, you know, have a little bit of a nationalistic framing. If you really want to nitpick that, you can. But I think if you're going to do electoral politics, I think you've got to get over that a little bit. But, um, you know, he's, he's using this kind of universalist, uh, you know, appeals, and he's framing it as moral common sense. He'll say, look, you know, the people in these marginalized groups, gay people, trans people, etc., they deserve the same rights we all enjoy as Americans. You can't single any group out and deny them equal protection under the law. I think it's a really good, compelling, simple message. Um, I also cited the article on the same lines, a tweet that he did after the governor of Pennsylvania vetoed a law that would uh, deny, um, that would have stopped trans girls from participating in high school sports, um, where... You know, like I said in the article, he's he's just kind of like he's taking the right position, but he's arguing for it not in that kind of way, AOC on Instagram kind of way, but like he's arguing for it in the way that like if you were talking to your most politically conservative friend, like over a couple of drinks, right? You're sitting at the bar and you were you were you were talking to them and you weren't trying to be an asshole about it. You were trying to like explain it to them in terms that you'd understand. How would you explain it, right? I think you'd pretty much do what he does in this tweet, in that video, right? So in the tweet, he says, look, this is a cruel law. And 
it's a distraction, you know, like going after trans kids is a distraction for the many very real problems that we have in this state. I think it's a perfect way to explain it. Uh, and then a third one that I highlighted in the, uh, in the article was about uh, the video where he's talking about um, uh, sorry, he's uh, okay, first one was the union way of life, the second one was the, oh yeah, the third one was the, uh, the healthcare one, right? And he just starts out, he says, look, I don't know how else I can explain this. I think healthcare is a basic, fundamental human right, like housing and education and food and shelter. That's so good, right? That's exactly the right approach, right, that we want as a political communicator. Um, again, everything that's good, you know, in terms of political communication about some of the people in the squad, but like sort of steering clear of what could be alienated about them. Um, now, on policy specifics, I do think that Fetterman is a little bit of a mixed bag. I go into this in the article. I think he has some real flaws. And like I said about the squad earlier, I think we need to be able to call balls and strikes about this. Uh, I think on foreign policy in particular, there are some good signs, right? He was touted in an endorsement from Peace Action. He's said some of the right things about costly wars of choice and the importance of diplomacy. But I think a lot of people who've been following his career for a while, I think, have legitimate concerns that he's not really going to you know, rock the boat very much on foreign policy and pick fights with Democratic leadership about it. I think that's a legitimate concern. I think he's also pretty bad on Palestine. Right. Like, I think he, he just kind of say that he's just sort of, you know, kissing the rig in the way that you, you know, usually have to do in American politics. In fact, it's really encouraging when people don't without a lot of thoughts like, oh, yeah, I'm going to lead into the U.S.-Israel relationship. That's bad. That should be criticized. Um, I don't think we should exaggerate the scope of the difference between him and some of the existing uh, congressional progressives on this stuff, you know, Bernie Sanders and Jabal Bowman both voted for the Iron Dome Fund. At least Bernie got something in exchange, which was some humanitarian aid to Gaza, but, like, um, it's still a bad vote. Uh, and it's, um, you know, and, and, you know, AOC notoriously voted present on that. You know, it's, it's again, I think all of these guys need to do better on foreign policy, um, guys and girls need to do better on foreign policy. Uh, and I think we should be holding their feet to the fire much more than we are on the left about, you know, some of the foreign policy failings. Uh, but, you know, I think that would be probably my biggest objection to Fetterman. Uh, the next one is even though he did, I think, very, you know, kind of go out on the limb to endorse Bernie Sanders the first time. I don't think he made an endorsement in 2020. You know, he's never embraced the Democratic Socialist label. Um, and, you know, sometimes even on Medicare for all, I was praising the way that he was arguing for it earlier, but, you know, he's been a little bit slippery even, right? Like, you know, like there was a democratic debate where he was asked like, oh, uh, would you vote for Medicare for all in the Senate? He said, yeah, sure. I'd vote for anything that, you know, that gave more people health care. It's like, okay. It's not that the substance of that answer is bad, but it's a little bit slippery. I'd like him to be much clearer about why Medicare for all specifically is important and why the difference matters between Medicare for All and, um, uh, and, um, and the sort of halfway measures, you know, like a public option that would still leave uh, the blood-sucking private insurance industry in place. And finally, last but not least, I think on fracking, you know, he used to be very against it, and he's backed off from that in a way that's not shocking for somebody running for Senate in Pennsylvania, but I'm sure a lot of people with, you know, 
green kind of policy priorities be very critical of him about it, right? So I think there are some very real flaws. Um, I don't think they make him night and day different from the existing Bernie Kratz. I think a lot of these people have some combination of some of those flaws, but I think there are certain respects in which he's closer to the Democratic mainstream than, than like some of the people in the squad are and policy issues, and I think he should be criticized for that. Doesn't mean I don't want him to win, but I do think he, you know, I, I think he would be obviously about 20,000 times better than Dr. Oz and, and 20,000 times better than most of the Democrats, you know, maybe not 20,000 times better, but at least 2,000 times better than most of the Democrats in the Senate. Um, but, you know, but there are some real criticisms of him on, on policy and, you know, and, and I do, I do want to include that in the article, but nevertheless, uh, I think the exciting thing about him is that as a political communicator, he's the first person who would be, you know, speaking broadly, right? We just went through some of the complications, but he's the first person you could like think of more or less as a birdie crat who's potentially going to be in Congress. And he's actually going to be in the Senate, right? You know, but uh, if he wins, um, who actually is doing what I was criticizing the rest of the birdie crats for not doing, which is, is actually applying the sort of winning formula that has allowed Bernie Sanders to, you know, come as close as he did to the presidency, right? That he won 22 states in 2016. He had, uh, he, uh, in some ways, right, the the primaries were over much sooner because of the consolidation of the other centrist candidates behind Biden because of COVID kind of shutting down the race. But at the beginning, he actually came closer in some ways in 2020. You know, he did the hat trick of winning Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, all back to back to back. Uh, and everybody, everybody assumed that he would win, you know, at least come to the convention with a plurality at that point. Uh, now, I don't know if there's a scenario where Bernie would have won the primaries. I mean, it's a, it's complicated. What could he have done South Carolina, et cetera. But the point is that, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's really hard for me to imagine AOC, for example, um, you know, coming, um, coming as close as Bernie did. Right, like I, 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 you know, relative to to this group of people, I think that's like the most winning formula that we have politically, and the fact that Fetterman is the first one of the successors to actually be running in that Bernie kind of mold, I think is very exciting, and so the hope I express at the end of the article is that, and I'll, after I say this, I'll I'll go to Cynthia's call that if Fetterman wins, you know, they could they might take a page right from from this like more simple kind of populist communication style that he's got. And I hope some of those people would have better, you know, positions on some of the policy areas that I was criticizing Fetterman about. But, you know, despite warts at all, right? I mean, I think that is why I still find the campaign exciting. Okay, I'm going to go to Cynthia's call. Yeah, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, I just wanted to say real quick, uh, well, that's not my question, but I remember sure. when I first encountered John Fetterman on um, um, parts unknown. Did you ever ever see that? Uh uh-uh. uh Um, it was like I forgot where Anthony Bourdain was visiting, but it it was really cool, and I remember uh. just being like, "This guy is so interesting and like yeah. so down to earth," and I just like really liked him a lot, you know. Um, so I'm totally. like really hoping for him, but um, really basic question: sure. Why did they vote? For the $40 billion? <laughs> I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the the real answer, as far as I can tell, is just that there's, like, 
it's been such a crazy atmosphere of jingoism since the war, you know, in Ukraine started that like, um, that they just kind of gave in to, to, to the pressure. I mean, like, remember there was a, I hope this, this number is down now. Right. But like right after Russia invaded, there were, there were like polls where like 75% of Americans were saying they wanted, they would support a no fly zone in Ukraine, which would have actually started world war three, you know? So, um, In that atmosphere, I guess I guess maybe they just didn't want to be branded. I mean, maybe it was sincere. Maybe they really thought it was a good idea. But, like, the more cynical thought is they just didn't want to be branded as, like, you know, not being on the side of, you know, people fighting for freedom against Putin or whatever. But, yeah, I think it was a really bad vote. Mm. Well, that didn't well. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, that was all that I had to ask. Okay. Yeah, well, fair enough. I like the uh, yeah. I like. The, I, I should go back and watch that. I actually really like Anthony Bourdain's. Um, it's so good, and it's just you can just like I know you know this isn't the only reason why I go for people, but yeah, yeah. It, it's I mean like Bernie. I was so drawn to him because he was just so authentic and sincere. Like God, how can fucking you know Mohammed Oz? <laughs> like, like you know i mean like just how like how can people just not see that sincerity but, um you know and, and go for somebody who doesn't even live there and you know is so phony but yeah well so far like i said i mean there's a lot of time between now and the election so who knows but so far it looks good yeah. uh so you know fingers crossed but in any case uh thank you for the call cynthia yeah. Uh, and we probably are going to have to cut that off there for tonight. Uh, so I will probably do another one of these on Sunday afternoon. We'll see people then. Left is best.